Section 36 The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 36. Chapter 6 Concluded. The French Revolution and the Catholic Church. To the way in which I have presented the problem, a great deal more might be added. The very fact that the democratic movement had come after a period of unfaith and was non-Catholic in its springs would have tended to produce that quarrel. So would the necessary attachment of the Catholic to authority and the easy confusion between the principle of authority and claims of a traditional monarchy. Again, the elements of vanity, of material greed, and of a false finality which are to be discovered in any purely democratic theory of the state will between them always bring this theory into some conflict with religion the centuries during which the throne and the altar had stood as twin symbols especially in france the very terminology of religious metaphor which had been forged during the centuries of monarchical institutions in europe helped to found the great quarrel but i repeat the overt act without which the quarrel could never have become the terribly great thing it did the master blunder which destroyed the unity of the revolutionary movement was the civil constitution of the clergy so much for the first year of the schism may seventeen ninety to may seventeen ninety one the second year is but an intensification of the process apparent in the first it opens with the king's flight in june seventeen ninety one that is with the first open act of enmity taken against the authority of the national parliament since two years before the national parliament had declared itself supreme already the court had been generally identified with the resistance of the clergy and a particular example of this had appeared in the opinion that the king's attempted journey to st cloud in april had been prompted by a desire to have communion at the hands of a non-juring priest. Footnote. This opinion has entered into so many Protestant and non-Catholic histories of the Revolution that it is worth criticizing once again in this little book. The king was perfectly free to receive communion privately from the hands of Orthodox priests, did so receive it, and had received communion well within the canonical times there was little ecclesiastical reason for the attempted leaving of paris for st cloud on monday the eighteenth april seventeen ninety one save the custom not the religious duty of communicating in public on easter sunday itself it was a political move when therefore the king fled though his flight had nothing whatsoever to do with the clerical quarrel it was associated in men's minds with the clerical quarrel through his attempt to leave Paris in April, and from a long association of the court with the clerical resistance. The outburst of anti-monarchical feeling which followed the flight was at the same time an outburst of anti-clerical feeling. But the clergy were everywhere and could be attacked everywhere. The declaration of Pilnitz, which the nation very rightly interpreted as the beginning of an armed European advance against the French democracy, was felt to be a threat not only in favour of the king but in favour also of the rebellious ecclesiastics and so forth 
the uneasy approach of the war throughout that autumn and winter of seventeen ninety one ninety two the peculiar transformation of the french temperament which war or its approach invariably produces a sort of constructive exultation and creative passion began to turn a great part of its energy or fury against the very persons of the orthodox priests the new parliament the legislative as it was called had not been sitting two months when it passed upon november twenty ninth seventeen ninety one the decree that non-juring priests should be deprived of their stipend and here again we must note the curious lack of adjustment between law and fact in all this clerical quarrel for more than a year public money had been paid to men who under the law should not during the whole of that year have touched any salary yet as in the case of the oath special action was necessary and moreover the parliament added to this tardy and logical consequence of the law a declaration that those who had not so taken the oath within eight days of their decree should be rendered suspect the word suspect is significant the parliament even now could not act at least it could not act without the king and this word suspect which carried no material consequences with it was one that might cover a threat of things worse than regular and legal punishment it was like the mark that some power not authorized or legal makes upon the door of those whom that power has singled out for massacre in some city three weeks later louis vetoed the decree refusing stipends to nonjurors and the year seventeen ninety one ended with the whole matter in suspense but with the exasperation increasing to madness the first three months of seventeen ninety two saw no change the nonjuring clergy were still tolerated by the executive in their illegal position and what is more extraordinary still received public money and were still for the most part in possession of their cures the conception that the clergy were the prime or at any rate the most obvious enemies of the new regime now hardened into a fixed opinion which the attempted persecution of religion as the one party called it the obstinate and anti-national rebellion of fascist priests as the other party called it was rapidly approaching real persecution and real rebellion with april seventeen ninety two came the war and all the passions of the war the known hostility of the king to the revolution was now become something far worse his known sympathy with an enemy under arms to force the king into the open was henceforward the main tactic of the revolutionary body now for those whose object was forcing louis the sixteenth to open declaration of hostility against the nation his religion was an obvious instrument in no point could one come to closer grips with the king than on this question of the church where already in december seventeen ninety one he had exercised his veto on may twenty seventh seventeen ninety two therefore godet and vernod the girondins moved that a priest who had refused to take the oath should be subjected to transportation upon the mere demand of any twenty taxpayers within that assembly of parishes known as a canton it was almost exactly two years since the civil constitution of the clergy had first been reported to the house by the ecclesiastical committee of the constituent or national assembly it must not be forgotten under what external conditions this violent act the first true act of persecution was demanded 
It was already a month since upon the 20th of April the war had opened upon the Belgian frontier by a disgraceful panic and the murder of General Dillon. Almost contemporaneous with that breakdown was the corresponding panic and flight of the French troops in their advance to Mons. All Europe was talking of the facile march upon Paris, which could now be undertaken, and in general this decree against the priests was but part of the exasperated policy which was rising to meet the terror of the invasion. It was followed, of course, by the decree dismissing the royal guard, and rather more than a week later by the demand for the formation of a camp of volunteers under the walls of Paris. But with this we are not here concerned. The king vetoed the decree against the non-juring priests, and in the wild two months that followed, the orthodox clergy were in the mind of the populace, and particularly the populace of Paris, identified with the cause of the re-establishment of the old regime and the success of the invading foreign armies. With the crash of the 10th of August, the persecution began, the true persecution which was to the growing bitterness of the previous two years what a blow is to the opening words of a quarrel. The decree of the 27th of May was put into force within eleven days of the fall of the Tuileries. True, it was not put into force in that crudity which the Parliament had demanded. The non-juring priests were given a fortnight to leave the kingdom, and if they failed to avail themselves of the delay, were to be transported. From this date to the end of the terror, twenty-three months later, the story of the relation between the Revolution and the Church, though wild and terrible, is simple. It is a story of mere persecution, culminating in extremes of cruelty, and in the supposed uprooting of Christianity in France. The Orthodox clergy were everywhere regarded by this time as the typical enemies of the revolutionary movement. They themselves regarded the revolutionary movement by this time as being principally an attempt to destroy the Catholic Church. Within seven months of the fall of the monarchy, from the 18th of March, 1793, the priests, whether non-juring or schismatic, might on the denunciation of any six citizens be subjected to transportation. There followed immediately a general attack upon religion. The attempted closing of all churches was, of course, a failure, but it was firmly believed that such attachment as yet remained to the Catholic Church was due only to the ignorance of the provincial districts which displayed it, or to the self-seeking of those who fostered it. The attempt at mere de-Christianization, as it was called, failed, but the months of terror and cruelty, the vast number of martyrdoms, for they were no less, and the incredible sufferings and indignities to which the priests who attempted to remain in the country were subjected, burnt itself, as it were, into the very fiber of the Catholic organization in France, and remained in spite of political theory, one way or the other, and in spite of the national sympathies of the priesthood, the one great active memory inherited from that time. Conversely, the picture of the priest, his habit and character, as the fatal and necessary opponent of the revolutionary theory, became so fixed in the mind of the Republican, that two generations did nothing to eliminate it, and that even in our time the older men, in spite of pure theory, cannot rid themselves of an imagined connection between the Catholic Church and an international conspiracy against democracy. Nor does this non-rational but very real feeling 
lack support from the utterances of those who in opposing the political theory of the french revolution consistently quote the catholic church as its necessary and holy antagonist the attempt to dechristianize france failed as i have said completely public worship was restored and the concordat of napoleon was believed to have settled the relations between church and state in a permanent fashion we have lived to see it dissolved but this generation will not see nor perhaps the generation succeeding it the issue of the struggle between two bodies of thought which are divided by no process of reason but profoundly divorced by the action of vivid and tragic historical memories the end of section thirty six the end of chapter six the end of the french revolution